Dr. Harold Wolf, a professor at Cornell University Medical College, reported doing studies in 1957 on the 6,000 U.S. prisoners of war in North Korea. About a third of these prisoners of war died. Doctors who were on the scene noted that the cause of death in many cases was a sort of give-up-itis. The depressed prisoner would refuse to eat or drink, stare into space, and eventually die. Similar studies done during the Vietnam War confirmed these findings. However, in POW camps where purpose and hope remained strong, the survival rate was much higher. The lesson is clear. When hope dies, man dies. Viktor Frankl, a Viennese psychiatrist who endured three years in German prison camps, wrote a book about his experiences entitled Man's Search for Meaning. In that book, he tells about the increase in the death rate between Christmas and New Year's Day in 1944 in his particular camp. The reason for the increase was that prisoners had expected to be home by Christmas, and when the holiday passed without any sign of release, many gave up hope and died. Hope is what keeps prisoners alive. When hope dies, the prisoner dies. Reading through the book of Zechariah, there is an odd expression in the middle of the book that capsulizes the message. Zechariah calls his readers prisoners of hope in Zechariah 9.12. The two words don't seem to go together. We do not usually think of prisoners and hope in the same context. Prisons in the ancient world were temporary holding places for people condemned to die. They were places of darkness and gloom where hope went to die. On the other hand, hope in the Old Testament means to wait or to look forward to something with eager expectation. Hope is oriented toward the future. Hope exhibits confidence in God. Zechariah is writing to a people returning from the Babylonian captivity to a land desolated by the enemy. He is writing to people who desperately needed hope. His listeners were prisoners who possessed a hope for the future despite their present circumstances. That hope keeps them working and living. Their circumstances didn't imprison them. They were prisoners of hope, locked up by a future expectation. If hope imprisons us, we can face any circumstance without despair. Zechariah teaches us that God gives promises of comfort for prisoners of hope. I would like to give you an overview of the book of Zechariah as we begin our study of this great prophecy. Zechariah can be divided into four major sections. First, comfort requires repentance, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Let's set the stage. 
In 538 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, decreed that the Israelites could return to their land after being in captivity for between 50 to 70 years. About 50,000 Jews returned to the land under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the political leader, and Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah's grandfather was a priest named Iddo, who returned with Zerubbabel at that time. The people immediately began rebuilding the temple, but were stopped by an edict from the king because of complaints from their neighbors. For 16 years the temple lay in ruins while the people pursued their jobs and rebuilt their homes. Then Haggai and Zechariah began prophesying together. Haggai only preached for about three months, but Zechariah would preach to the people for the next 30 to 40 years. The problem that both Haggai and Zechariah address is the problem of sin and Israel's need for repentance if they were to enjoy God's blessing. Sin is always the crux of any spiritual problem. God told Zechariah to say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen to give heed to me, declares the Lord. Zechariah 1, 3-4 One of the great themes of all prophetic literature is return to me. Throughout the prophets, God is pleading with his people to return to him and to his ways. The Hebrew word for return is translated into the Greek Septuagint with the Greek word which the New Testament translates as repent. What is repentance? The word pictures someone walking down a road in one direction, then reversing direction to return to where he began. When we pursue sin, we are walking away from God, and we need to return to him and his directions for life. We are living in a day of easy believism and cheap grace. We are soft on sin. We treat sin as if it is a mistake we can sweep under the rug and forget. We give our sins psychological names which excuse us of any responsibility. Sin becomes a sickness I can put a label on instead of a moral failure I need to repent from. But if my, sick, my sin is a sickness, then I am stuck with it. Because the sickness then defines me. I cannot change what I cannot cure. Repentance is a gift from God that frees me to change. Repentance is a new beginning, a return to begin again where I went wrong. Spiritual healing always begins with repentance, for I return to God who heals my soul. The turning point is repentance. 
If we want to be prisoners of hope, we must turn away from the prison of sin. Whatever imprisons you takes away your hope, my friends. Followers of Christ live by regular repentance. We consistently return to God to find the renewing hope we need to face tomorrow. If all you can see are your painful circumstances, turn around. You are looking in the wrong direction. Return to God and you will find a new beginning and a fresh hope for the future. Where you look determines what you see. If you are looking only at your circumstances, you will be discouraged. If you are looking at God, you will find hope in life. The second major section of Zechariah teaches us that visions produce hope. Chapter 1, verse 7, through chapter 6, verse 15. What you see when you return to God will change your life. God gives Zechariah eight night visions about the future of Israel in chapters 1 through 6. God intends each vision to give additional hope to the Jews concerning their future with God. These eight night visions culminate in a beautiful and picturesque symbolic act. God tells the prophet to make a crown of silver and gold and place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah is to tell Joshua, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Zechariah is symbolizing the crowning of a king-priest to rule on the throne of David. Joshua, the current high priest, is just an example of the coming high priest, the king-priest, who will reign in the future. He is Messiah, Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And much of the book of Zechariah is messianic. In fact, Zechariah is second only to Isaiah in messianic content among the prophets. The people of Israel were so caught up in the struggles of this life that they had lost sight of the grand hope of the future. They needed to be lifted out of their doldrums to see the Messiah and his plan for the future. <clears throat> we also need these reminders in the middle of our circumstances. God holds the future in the palm of his almighty hand. Nations may descend into chaos. Economies may collapse. War may consume the world. Disease may rob us of our vitality. Yet still we can trust God. We can look to Jesus, our Messiah, as the Savior of this world. As we study this book, we will examine much prophecy. 
the study of prophecy should humble us as much as it should encourage us. We do not always understand the future until it is past. Carol Mayall wrote a poem years ago in her book, Help, Lord, My Whole Life Hurts. Father, I don't like this. Mist has fogged all certainty. I can't see. There are no colors, not even black and white, just gray. No clear-cut outlines, no vision of purpose or plans. I'm terrified, lost, feeling abandoned. But within my heart, I know that though I can't see you, your eye is on me. Your hand holds mine, even though its touch is lost to me right now. And from somewhere comes the knowledge that in my quest for humility, your desire for my humility, the mist is part of the path. Not knowing, not understanding, not seeing, are tools, important ones, for teaching me, well, as yet I know not what. The mist diffuses your light, walls it back to me, confuses the source of that light. I'm unable even to look down to see the rock beneath my feet. I can only stand still and wait and listen and hope. My friends, we may not always understand what is happening. We may not always see clearly through the fog and mist of our circumstances. But we can always hope, because we believe this foundational truth for all of life, our God is in control of the future. He has a plan, and he is working that plan. God's got this. Friends, that is biblical hope, not wishful thinking. So comfort requires repentance, Visions produce hope. And third, fasting becomes feasting. Zechariah 7, 1 through 8, 23. A, delegate, a delegation from the town of Bethel comes to Zechariah to ask him if they should continue the periods of mourning and fasting that Israel had been doing for the 70 years of exile. Fasting was intended to be for confession of sin, and pleading for God's blessing. But fasting had become just another ritual which the people performed with the mistaken notion that if they performed these rituals, then God would be obligated to bless them. So God asked them, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? Zechariah 7, 5. You see, they didn't fast for God. They fasted for themselves. Now, there is nothing wrong with rituals if there is a spiritual reality behind the ritual. When the religious forms becomes more important than the spiritual reality, you have a fake faith, a sham spirituality. It's not real. It's hollow. It's hypocritical. 
Fasting does not prove our faith. Actions are the fruit of faith. So God goes on to say to the people, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the resident alien or the poor and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Zechariah 7, 9 and 10. If you want to show your faith in God, live it, don't just claim it. Our religious forms today are no different. When you put your faith in the forms of faith, you will have no reality. If you think that coming to church on Sunday, giving money to church ministries, or having your devotions every morning will make you spiritual, think again. We imagine that coming to church for prayer meeting will make us super spiritual. And fasting? Wow! We would be at the top of the spiritual pyramid. Yet isn't that often exactly how we think in the church? The more meetings we attend... The more rituals we perform, the more spiritual we are. We begin to evaluate spirituality by the forms of faith, not the actions of faith. And God says that's fake faith. Real faith is seen in how we treat other people. Do we pursue justice and act with kindness and compassion? Do, you, do we oppress the widows and the orphans, the immigrants and the poor people around us? These are the tests of true faith, not attendance in a church building. God says, live the faith, don't just claim the faith. And God turns from fasting to feasting in chapter 8. Of Zechariah. When the nation returns to God in true repentance, then God returns to the nation. When the followers of Christ start living out their faith, practicing justice, and showing compassion for others, then God will bless his people. Our actions, not our words, are the fruit of faith. How we treat the poor, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan shows our faith. Then God promises a new beginning for his people. God promised Israel that he would bring them back to the land and live among them in this glorious future kingdom. God says, You know all those fasts that you have been performing? thinking that you would curry my favor? Guess what? They are all going to be transformed into feasts one day. Fasting will become feasting in the kingdom of God. Zechariah eight nineteen, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace.
Here were all these super-religious people moping around, burdened with the guilt of trying to follow all of the forms of their faith. They were frantically trying to gain God's blessing by rituals instead of reality, by forms without faith. Zechariah says, guess what? We're going to have a party. Talk about a shock to the religious legalist. God is preparing one big party for Israel in the restored kingdom. And we, as Christians, get to have a part in that too. Christians, of all people, ought to have a positive outlook on life because we know the end of the story. Yet there is so much mopey-dopey Christianity today that it is no wonder others don't want to become Christians. Zechariah teaches us to think of life this way. God is going to change our fasting into feasting someday. So look on the bright side. The story ends when God wins. The final section of Zechariah focuses on prophecy about God's great win at the end of this age. Zechariah tells us that prophecy predicts justice, chapter 9, verse 1 through 1421. There have been many scholars who have argued that this section of Zechariah was not written by the prophet, because it is written in a different style than the first eight chapters. I would say that these oracles were likely written by the prophet, preached by the prophet, later in his life, after the temple was rebuilt. He was an old man as he preached these sermons. His age would account for the marked differences in style since we can certainly change our style of communicating as we grow older and under different circumstances. Furthermore, there is no textual evidence that these chapters were not part of the original book of Zechariah. All the evidence indicates they were. There are two beautiful sections in these chapters focusing on the coming king of Israel. They are among the most dramatic messianic prophecies in the entire Old Testament. We know now by hindsight what the prophet could not fully grasp in his day. These are prophecies of two comings of the king. First, the king is coming in humility, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Obviously, you're familiar with this, this verse. This is the passage that Matthew applies to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by Jesus on what we now call Palm Sunday, Matthew 21.5. Here is the first coming of the king. He didn't come like they expected. He didn't come in pomp and flash. 
He didn't liberate them from Gentile oppression, so the people crucified their Messiah who came to them in humility. Second, the second coming, the king is coming in majesty. Zechariah 14, 9. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Zechariah ends his book, perhaps near the end of his own life and ministry, as an old preacher, with a wonderful prophecy about the time when Messiah will reign on this earth as king, and all the nations will bow before him. All enemies will be defeated. Victory will be complete. Here is the end result, the culmination of all the prophecies of the coming king. Zechariah is no simple-minded optimist. He prepares the people for the fact that the king will be rejected and killed at his first coming. They will experience great suffering and much pain through the years as a nation. But as one writer put it, when evil has done its worst, the Lord remains king. Sometimes it seems like God has forgotten his people. The prophet Isaiah wrote, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Isaiah 8.17 What do you do when God hides his face from you? What do you do when rejection and pain are your lot? You wait for the Lord. You hope in him. Why? Because you know the truth that when evil has done its worst, the Lord still reigns. Prophecy is intensely practical. Prophecy is given to encourage believers to live obedient lives while they wait for God to fulfill his promises. God gives us glimpses of the future to help us live in the present. Hope is the point of prophecy. Unfortunately, we have made prophecy into some sort of carnival sideshow with our date setting and our fascination with the latest computer technology behind the latest theory of the number 666. I call it the 666 syndrome. We've got prophecy groupies running from one prophecy conference to another who aren't worth a hill of beans to God's work because they are so busy researching the latest conspiracy theory behind the COVID-19 vaccine and Bill Gates. Friends, we shouldn't study prophecy as if we are reading a titillating spy novel filled with the latest conspiracy theories. Prophecy is practical and ought to be preached that way. We will study prophecy in Zechariah, but our study should change how we live right now because we know that the king is coming again. The message of Zechariah is simple. 
God gives promises of comfort for prisoners of hope. Viktor Frankl relates how those years in the German concentration camps reduced inmates to skin and rags. He suffered from swollen legs and skin so tightly stretched he could hardly bend his knees. His feet were so swollen that he could not put any socks on even if he had them to put on. He couldn't tie his shoes. He lived on tiny pieces of bread, which he would eat crumb by crumb. Frankel finally became so disgusted that every waking thought centered around scraps of food and how painful life was that he began to focus on his dreams for what he would do when the war was over. He was able to endure the sufferings of the present by picturing them as already past and looking ahead to a better future. When he was taken to Auschwitz, the guards confiscated a manuscript he was writing. Frankel was convinced that his deep commitment to rewrite the lost manuscript and his hope in the future got him through the ordeal. Zechariah calls his people prisoners of hope. We, too, are prisoners of hope. The phrase has a dual meaning. The expression could be taken as prisoners who possess a hope, but it also can be taken as prisoners who are possessed by a hope. We are imprisoned by hope. Hope imprisons or controls us so that we live for hope. Hope is energizing. Hope is powerful. As someone has said, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Do you have a why to live today? <laughs>